Hey, it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and Apex Coach, providing you insights and tools to better understand and apply the Apex body of knowledge to everyday supply chains. In this interview, we spoke with John Hill, industry veteran in the data collection and warehouse management system space, to get a better understanding of the history of this important supply chain industry. It all sounds pretty boring, so let's see if John can prove me wrong. John, thanks for speaking with me today about your career in supply chain management and specifically the field of technology. When I first met you many years ago, you were doing the WMS slash data collection roadshows for, for what I think was, was MHI. It may have been different back then. I was thoroughly impressed with your, your knowledge and, and your presentation style. And, and I used many of your ideas and, and probably even some of your content over the years to help educate and sell people on, on warehouse management systems. So John, what I want you to do is just kind of take me back to kind of where, where you got started, how you got started in the field, and which I think is now, we call it WMS, but back then it wasn't. I think it's over 40 years ago, if I'm correct. Is that right? Well, close to 50. Okay. And thank you for having me, Chris. It's just a pleasure to have you here. As I said, I, I'm a big fan of understanding. I've been, been very fortunate in the WMS field and in my career, and, and I just like to learn the history of it. That's what we're doing here. So, so you started, well, I think you went to university. Uh, what was your I degree did. at university? Yeah. <laughs> Industrial psychology. Industrial psychology. Interesting. So I have to be it, careful uh, about the questions. I have to be careful about the questions I ask. Oh. <laughs> well, I was told at the time that I would never get out of the university unless I majored in engineering. Being a brash, young 18-year-old, I said, I can take any course and do all right. And so I wound up doing industrial psychology, and it's lived with me my entire career. And where'd you go to university? Princeton. So that is an interesting place, obviously well-known, but I just, last month, I did an interview with a gentleman named Ken Ackerman. Oh, I know Ken very well. Yeah, he's one of the founders of work, and I didn't realize he also went to Princeton. So there must be something in the water. I don't know. It had to be, although he's much older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I, I, joked, I joked with him that maybe him, I didn't realize you, but now it's two people. You and he are competing with Jeff Bezos for probably the most popular uh, logistics alumni from Princeton. I would guess you're right, but... I I won't speak for Ken, but I certainly am trailing Jeff. Sure. Now, why did you end up going to Princeton? It had to do with, back in those days, if you were doing well in secondary school, it wasn't too hard to get into a university. And I was playing in a schoolboy hockey tournament on the Princeton campus, whenever that was, 1954 during the Christmas holidays. And Princeton has one of the most idyllic landscapes of any school I had even been thinking of. And once I was there, number one, we won the hockey tournament. Number two, I was overcome by a real strong interest in attending the university. And so I called my advisor at my high school and I said, could we switch this from Yale to Princeton? And he said, yeah. And that's how I wound up there. Well, I know they take relatively smart people. So 
With, oh. It gives you some credibility there. No, it's, they're good universities, either one. Yeah, you bet. So how did you get involved in, well, I, I called it in my introduction, I called it supply chain management. My understanding is it probably wasn't called supply chain management 40 or 50 years ago. So how did you get involved in physical distribution, logistics, or supply chain management? Well, I came by way of uh, the automatic identification route. And I had a hand in, in putting together, as a role player, a company called Computer Identics, which pioneered the use of barcoding and laser scanners back in the late 60s. And uh, it became very quickly obvious to us that, in effect, a barcode scanner is little more than a novelty unless it's got some brains behind it. And that led us into doing systems with that technology, albeit some of them primitive. And that led, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the path I followed, but it led me into the world of material handling and warehousing and distribution and logistics. And that's many years ago now, but I, I've never for a minute not enjoyed the dynamics of the industry and been very much engaged along the way. Well, I just listened to a webinar that you were actually on. And you, you, I think you said the, the supply chain execution systems concept has been around since 1975. We didn't even call them supply chain then. We called them warehouse management systems. Okay, even back then. Okay. And I got way, way ahead of supply chain execution systems. And there's a, a side note here. Warehouse management systems back in, oh, well, it's not that long ago, at least for me, it's 30 years ago. We formed a group called the Warehouse Management Systems Trade Association under the umbrella of MHI, the material handling industry. And there were 29 companies back then who were offering WMS to the marketplace. And a few of the people in the group said, we've got a Warehouse management isn't terribly sexy. We've, we've got to put a new name on it. And that's when the term or phrase supply chain execution systems was born, right around 1995. It's interesting. Companies to this day are still trying to come up with a new name. Logistics execution, warehouse controls, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what it is. I first learned about WMS in probably 19, around that time. I'm out of Atlanta. Okay. So obviously uh, the big company here was Manhattan Associates. And I've always thought they were one of the originals, uh, WMS companies. Well, they, they actually came a bit late to the party. If you look at the chronology, uh, by late, I mean uh, late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, but they came in under the leadership of a fellow by the name of uh, Alan DeBerry, who was the CEO and founder of Manhattan. And they came in with a bang, very, very strong. Yeah, they did a lot of things well. They, they kind of, they kind of cre helped create the industry, I think. But before then, even, 
you had done some things in that space. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I, uh, I joined, well, my first introduction to warehouse management was at a material handling industry trade show at McCormick Place in 1974 when the founder of the world's first WMS company, a guy by the name of Vince Acapinti, met me at his booth and proceeded to try to sell me into leaving my company at the time and joining his. Further down the line during our discussion today, 10 years later, in 1985, I was recruited by the board of Logisticon to take over and become the CEO of the company. So what comes around goes around. So you had a, obviously had a lot of experience in back then it was, everything was focused on data collection. Probably that was a big part well, of it. Well, and it certainly was. And, but you know, it's, it's interesting. I have a, a quasi mantra, which is basically that, the best decision-making is executed on the basis of events as or before, not after they occur. Responsive systems provide discipline and control based not only upon plans and performance goals, but also upon the dynamics of actual operations. I wrote that for one of the trade magazines in 1976. So if you if you take a look at that and then look at the landscape today of systems and tools that are available uh, to speed the flow of products from source to consumption, uh, it still applies. The difference today, though, is today we really have the tools to make it happen far beyond yeah. what we ever envisaged 20, 30 years ago. So the, the Logisticon, that was, uh, that was a WMS company. The first one. The first one. And who was involved with that with you? And he was, was uh, Dave Scott, was he? Was <laughs> yeah, you, you know, David's, the anniversary of David's death was a couple of days ago. I miss him a lot. I think about him virtually every other day. And I talked with his widow on Monday. And so does she. So we reminisced about the good old days. David was a trailblazer, a barn burner, a brilliant engineer and systems designer, who I credit with much of the progress that has been made on the system side in the world of warehouse management. So thanks for giving me a chance to mention his name. So he was, uh, he was at Logisticon with you? Yeah. And he, he was uh, my alter ego. I was Mr. Outside. He was Mr. Inside. He made things happen. So you promised it and he delivered it. Exactly. And I didn't overpromise. <laughs> sure. And, and he rarely under delivered, uh, but he paved the way for what today is a pretty significant component of the overall mix of technology and systems for logistics. I started my career with 3M after a stint in the military. 
and I took various tests, and because I had a degree in psychology, not engineering, they were trying to figure out what to do with me, and they put me together with a professor from the University of Minnesota, who was a, another trailblazer at the time, and he taught me quite a bit uh, over the seven years I spent with 3M, uh, most of it overseas. But he introduced me to what I would call the first, the very first instance of using intelligent controls to improve performance in material handling uh, across the board in a variety of different applications. And some of your listeners, our listeners, might be interested in this first application. 3M manufactured a product. Uh, at the time, it was called Scotchlight, which you see on virtually, you see it and its successors on virtually every traffic sign, highway sign across the country in most countries of the world. It is consists of retro-reflective material. By retro-reflective, I mean it returns light to the source. And at 3M, uh, my mentor was tasked with figuring out a way to identify packages and cartons moving in warehouses and distribution centers to eliminate the need for some person sitting at a keyboard to read a label on the carton or the package and key enter the sortation destination, in other words, a, a shipping dock, for example. And he came up with this concept using retro-reflective tape, about an inch-long piece of it, which is, could be applied to given locations on the vertical spine or axis of pick carton. Each location on the carton spine represented a specific sortation destination, for example, a shipping dock. In, in a warehouse, once picked and taped, the cartons were placed on a takeaway conveyor that led or fed the shipping docks. Then we installed photocells at a height equivalent to that of the tape on the spine of the carton in advance of multiple sortation spurs at a height unique to each spur. When a photocell detected the reflective tape, it fired a solenoid, which then triggered carton sortation off the conveyor to that destination. Our first customer was the Kroger company. And over the next several years, hundreds of companies around the world used the same approach to eliminate keyboards, reduce the number of key stroke errors, and improve throughput throughout North America. Now, that's a pretty simplistic, primitive use of technology. But back then, this is mid-60s, it did revolutionize a, a major component of warehousing, that being sortation. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds a lot like uh, shipping sorters and getting things efficiently moved out. That was 1960s. I recently listened to a another podcast one of my colleagues i guess this week is the uh, the birthday of the or the celebration of the the invention of the upc code uh, barcode and it's interesting i think they've mentioned kroger as mm -hmm. well so it sounds like kroger was pretty involved in 
logistics and supply chain back then? They had an industrial engineering department back then, and I suspect they still do, that was all, not on the bleeding edge, but the leading edge of technology application. And the whole focus, at least uh, at the time, was to improve throughput without undermining accuracy and overall performance in a warehouse or distribution center. I, I moved from 3M because I was intrigued by this whole business of being able to do some type of scanning device in an industrial application or industrial environment. And went to a company called Computer Identics, where the technical team invented the world's first laser-based moving beam scanner. And they installed it at the Buick division of General Motors to read, and for the techies among you, close your ears, a four-bit, i.e. data points, black and white label, and feed the data contained in those four bits to a deck PDP-8 computer with a whopping 8K of memory. And we finally sold. Actually, we didn't sell. We leased because it was new technology and Buick wanted a way out. If it didn't work, leased it to Buick. The overall price, one laser scanner, one PDP-8 computer, a teletype for printing reports, and a mag tape drive that... Uh, weighed enough, you needed two people to move it around to store perhaps a megabyte of data. Now that 8K of memory and the scanner were tasked to account transmissions by type. There were 13 different types. Four bits gives me 16 alternatives. We were tight on label territory. During that thing, and this is the point I wanted to make, Chris, I learned something that has stayed with me for the last 50 years. And if you'll indulge me, let me tell you the legend of Joe Kleinkemper. Joe was the second shift, the swing shift supervisor at Buick. We were getting considerable pushback from the second shift workforce on the barcode initiative. It was a mystery to them. And, and it, gave them pause vis-a-vis -vis what it was going to do to their jobs. While brainstorming with Joe one night, I said, you know, what can we do to assure them that the barcode system isn't going to do anything but give them more credit, the right kind of credit, for the work they're doing? And he said to me, is there a chance that you guys could print up a bunch of those barcode labels? little rolls of labels, perhaps uh, 10 or 15 labels to a roll. I said, what are you going to do with them? And he said, what I'd like to do is we brief our, our workforce every night. And at one of our briefing, briefings, I'd like to hand those rolls of barcodes out and have you come and explain what they're being used for. Within a week, or probably even less than a week of that meeting, every man, woman, and child in Flint, Michigan was wearing a barcode on their front side, on their back side, on their foreheads, and what have you. His idea just went through the plant uh, with such alacrity 
that we got there obtained through that initiative, which he created total cooperation of the workforce for the barcode program that we were implementing. Obviously, I've never forgotten that. It's, it's yeah. been critical to every project that I've been engaged in. What I take away from that, John, is that even today, 2020, when you talk about putting warehouse management technology in a warehouse, the labor, the people, are some they can be resistant because they think it's going to eliminate their job. Or, or So I think what you said is, is even 50 years ago, you were trying to sell the concept as a value add. That, that was neat. Well, you know, over the years, I had a very bad habit. I blame the military on it. I smoked. And periodically, maybe every other hour, I'd go outside to light up. And guess who I met outside? Three quarters of the workforce back then. I learned more in a 10-minute spoke break than I did in two-hour conference calls or meetings with management. They knew what was going on. And once they knew I was harmless, they suggested that, you know, I might want to start gathering some of their thoughts on the various initiatives with which I was engaged at the time. Engage the workforce. If I leave no other message from this podcast, it's absolutely critical. If I recall from that webinar I just watched, it's very similar. You, I think you said, you obviously didn't mention Joe, but I think engaging the workforce is one of your key takeaways from that one. So you're consistent, if nothing else. <laughs> well, thank you for that. You know, you, people have to watch me at this age. Were you in the military? I didn't realize. Yeah, well, we did that back then. Well, no option, right? Wasn't it? <laughs> well, very little option. And Berlin Wall went up, and that kept me in Europe longer than I had originally planned. But nonetheless, I got engaged with the use of scanners and installed the first railroad scanner on the Swedish National Railway's main line up in northern Sweden. Come to think of it, God, that was back in 1967. Uh, we weren't the only ones in the barcode business, and we certainly weren't the only ones in the WMS business. But I happened to have the privilege of being there when they got off the ground. Just to wrap up on the military, what, what branch of service? I was in the Army, and I wore plain clothes. Well, I've got a theory and you're, you're adding to my theory uh, about the military. So being a warehouse person that I am, I find that probably 70% of the people I talk to in the warehouse management typically are former military. And I don't know if it's, if it's, it's because they, they teach such, such good logistics skills in the warehouse and in the, in the military, and then they transfer, or if they just teach that, that organizational mentality that you need to run a warehouse, probably a combination of both. Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I agree with you. I learned a lot in the military. It wasn't a waste of my time. Sure. By any stretch. Well, for, for any of my students that are listening or future students, they'll know I, when we talk about logistics, I always start off that it's basically was started by the military. If you look at anything to do with it, moving people, moving the food, moving the resources to the, you know, for the war fronts, it's kind of, a lot of this got to start. You know, we have a number of good magazines that cover our industry. One of the first was Modern Materials Handling. That publication 
was started by a former senior officer from the U.S. Army who got involved with logistics during World War II, and his first publication was called The Palletizer. That $2 will buy you a copy of USA Today. Well, palletizers are still, John, they're still popular today. That's oh, you bet they are. You bet getting, they are. Moving, putting things from the conveyor to the pallets and easier for the people. So you just reinforced my theory on the Army military and the logistics. So you're one of my data points. Thank you. You can call me anytime. You know, after, after we did the work with our friend Joe Kleinkemper at Buick, it became obvious that we needed a broader platform to talk our game. And we banded together, and I think this is important, at least from a historical point of view, with five other companies and formed a group called the Automatic Identification Manufacturers, called AIM today, and it operated under the umbrella of MHI, who's, among other things, is a treasure trove of information for material handling generally and proud sponsor of the ProMat and Modex show. About the time that we formed AIM, we put an article in another magazine called Material Handling Engineering. It's now called Material Handling and Logistics, in which we said, this was 1974 still, the trend in item coding is towards miniaturization. The use of such microencoding will permit assignment of a unique number to any product whose value warrants tracking, whether it's an automobile or a shipment of caviar in plant or across the country. And we made the prediction that within the next 10 years, that's from 74 forward, such product coding would become commonplace and in fact be standardized. Now, I'm not quite sure that the 10-year prediction was on the money, but it was close. And the importance of that little excerpt from uh, the article was the standardization component. Without standardization, back then, I, I doubt that AIM automatic identification member companies, total sales reached $3 million. I just read yesterday that the market is now projected to grow to 100 billion by 2025 and not only barcode but rfid machine imaging voice data collection and uh, its brethren are included in that number but that's a fairly sizable market yeah that's a big place to be i could take one tenth of it and be happy i think my youngest daughter years ago used to say daddy there's another one of your barcodes I wish I had a hundredth of a cent of each barcode that's been sold since that time. Standards have made it happen. In the pre-call, I, I was talking to you about a, a slightly different topic, John, the containerization, which is, again, one of my interesting concepts that I like to study. And that's really what revolutionized that. That industry was, just, they have ISO standards for 20-foot, 40-foot containers and obviously all the fastings right. and everything. And going back to that UPC podcast that I listened to, that that's one of the things they said was, was successful. Is it had to be standard. They didn't want it to be store-specific or manufacturer-specific. It had to be generic across all, all industries exactly. and all different types of stores. 
Yeah. I agree with you. And then that's where companies like that are still popular today, Atlanta based now, NCR, those types of companies, that's kind of where they, they really got their starts back in the UPC and the barcodes in the 60s, 60s and 70s. It's, it's just neat to see that, and they're still around. So another, just for my, my any students that might be listening, as, as I said, John, I teach supply chain management, and a, a key concept, depending on what you're studying, is is uh, AIDC, Automatic Identification and Collection, Automatic Identification right. Data Collection. And you had mentioned AIM, so I assume that, that that's related. But just for any students that listen, that is a key a key topic, and this is an actual pra- practitioner's perspective of it. So. So you were involved in that organization as well, AIDC or AIM, which was it called, you said? I, I was one of the founders. The founders. And is it still active? Oh, absolutely. AIM is uh, its own organization today. It's a website. It's amazing what comes out of my older head. It's aimglobal, one word, dot org. And it's obviously global in uh, its breadth. Well, I think that's probably where... I met you, and again, I'll I can take half of what you've been talking about and go back 20 years, maybe, and that's where it was. I was probably at a hotel somewhere because you, you used to travel all the country and probably the world doing these road shows once a week. I would guess. I don't know. Was that is that right? I traveled about- a lot. I haven't traveled much at all in the last two and a half months, and I've suffered severe withdrawal. <laughs> I can imagine, but all, only withdrawal, nothing else. Thank God. Sure, and sure. I. I hope none of our listeners have any anything contrary to that, have had anything contrary to that. But that was a big, big draw back then. I mean, anything data collection, it was the it was kind of the birth of the warehouse management systems were evolving, becoming, I don't want to say standard, but becoming mainstream. And you were kind of on the, the tip of the spear. I mean, you talked about Logisticon, which I always thought Manhattan or McHugh Freeman were the originals. Because, you know, that's, that's when I came of age was the 90s. Right. And that's what I knew. So I just assumed I'd heard all the, being Atlanta, I'd heard all the stories about Manhattan and what they'd done. To your credit, you probably heard a lot about it at Georgia Tech. Correct. Yeah, yes. there's a, a, a seat endowed there. But I recall there was also Catalyst was a company. Catalyst uh, was there. EXE or Dallas Systems. Like, Oh, yeah. They were subsumed by another organization. But literally uh, at our start with the, WMS group under the MHI umbrella, we had 29 companies within the first year of that organization. And there were probably another 150 companies who, who didn't join at that time who were also offering the technology for similar purposes or applications. I worked at Accenture for a while. And that's when we were yes. at Anderson Consulting. So we were doing a lot with the big players. That's what I said, McHugh. Manhattan and Catalyst. But I remember even back then, John, Gartner had the, the ratings and everything, and there were, there were 150, 200 plus companies in the space. And I think today there's probably still as many. I can't, it's, it's interesting to see, but they're not as well known as they used to be. Thanks for listening to the first part of this multi-part series. If you're interested in APIC certifications, there's a YouTube video where you can learn more about bootcamp style workshops at Georgia Tech. Search on Apex Bootcamp Courses Informational Webinar. If you're in the North Georgia, North Alabama, Chattanooga area, check out the traditional class formats offered by the University of Tennessee Chattanooga Center for Professional Education Supply Chain Academy. Optionally, the Apex Coach can bring supply chain certification workshops to your company. Just send a note to chris at apexcoach.com.
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. 